Good. Ah. I live in panic every week. As I start to walk up, I can never remember. You'd think after all these years, I'd remember which way the button's supposed to go. But I don't. And it's behind me, Robert, and I can't see it. (laughs) Crazy. Well, we're ready. I'm ready. I hope you are. Somebody came up here before the service began with a gigantic clock, as if that was going to do a bit of good. We are on the second part of a two-part message in preparation for Easter. And it's a, not a typical message. It's, it's a message drawn from a harmony of the Gospels, and it's designed to put the pieces together. And in the process of putting the pieces together, the life of Jesus Christ to enable us to grow in our love for Him, our understanding of Him as our Savior, as the God-man. It's also designed to help explain the events that lead up to the weekend that's coming, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. So as we left off last Sunday... Jesus had just entered the capital city of Jerusalem. And he had done so to an overwhelming outpouring of messianic expectations and public support. It's called Palm Sunday. In fact, today, Palm Sunday. He had demonstrated through fulfilled prophecy through an incredible number of miraculous deeds, that he was indeed the long-awaited one. But now was the moment of decision. It was time for the nation to make its official choice. Would they have this one to be their king? We know the outcome, don't we? They refused him, called for him to be crucified. But what happened? What turned the adoring throngs into a murderous mob in less than a week? Maybe asked another way, the question could be put like this. Given Sunday, why Friday? Given Sunday, why Friday? The answer to the question is Monday and Tuesday. The events that occur on these two days transforms the nation. It eventuates in the cross. You'll remember last week that I told you that Jesus personified the teaching that he gave to his disciples, which were, was that we are to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. You remember that? Jesus personifies that teaching. For three years, he, he carefully and skillfully utilized the long-standing hostilities that existed among the leadership of the nation of Israel in order to maneuver his way around the nation, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, 
and avoiding their murderous wrath. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the two main ruling parties, they hated each other. They hated each other. But by the end of Jesus' public ministry, they hated him more. And they came together to kill him. The common people thought the whole thing was a rather entertaining affair. They enjoyed seeing the leadership bested. They chafed under the Sadducees who ruled in the temple because they were corrupt. The people were abused by them when they came to present their offerings. There was no love for the Sadducees. The Pharisees, on the other hand, ruled in the synagogues, in and among the people. Jesus there humiliated them by calling their authority into question, performing all sorts of miracles. The people thought the whole thing was rather entertaining. Not to mention the fact that Jesus would occasionally feed them a meal and he would heal their sick. It was his direct attack upon the domain of the Pharisees and the synagogues that absolutely enraged them. It was his cleansing of the temple that enraged the Sadducees. But he was careful to never do both at the same time. To play one off against the other. His public ministry began by the cleansing of the temple. The Sadducees were enraged. The Pharisees thought, good. From there, Jesus moved out and away from the temple out and among the people in the country, and there he confronted the Pharisees, and the Sadducees thought, good. But now, after three years, he's going to bring them together, and he's going to confront all three, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the common people. And he's going to confront them and expose simultaneously their hardness of heart. He's going to poke their, his finger in their eye, as it were. All three. For the Sadducees, their, their weakness is the temple, and he's going to clean, cleanse it again. For the Pharisees, it is their reputation as the teachers of Israel. He's going to call it into public question. For the common people, it's their commitment to an external works-based righteousness. He's going to expose it for what it is. The nation, and through its leaders, had externalized and merchandised the worship of God. And it was all going to come to a head on Monday and Tuesday. Their busy days... A lot of activity. And by the time they're over, the murderous rage of these antagonistic groups will be coalesced into a call for his crucifixion. Let's take a look and see how he does it. It begins on Monday early in the morning. 
Turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, and we'll look at just a couple of verses here, beginning in verse 12 and following. Mark chapter 11 and beginning in verse 12. On the next day, that's the day after Palm Sunday, when they had left Bethany, where Jesus spends the night, he, that is Jesus, became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples were listening. The scene is early on Monday morning. Jesus is traveling into the city from Bethany on the Mount of Olives where he's been staying with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He's heading into the city and he's hungry. He sees the fig tree on the side of the road solitary fig tree, and its leaves are fully developed. Now, I don't exactly know why, perhaps soil conditions or something, but it brought out the leaves on this fig tree, evidently ahead of the common season for figs. But the figs form on the tree before the leaves And so when he sees the tree with the leaves, he has every expectation that there might be figs to eat. And so he, being hungry, goes to the tree to get some figs. And when he arrives, he finds none. So he curses the tree. He curses it. It's a parable, an enacted parable. It has a a message. The message is this. Israel is like that tree. Her leaves are out. She shows promise. It was just the day before that they came and proclaimed him David, the king. Yet, upon closer inspection, there is no fruit. So he curses the tree in an enacted parable condemning hypocrisy. They proceed on into the city entering into the outer court of the temple, known as the court of the Gentiles. By the time Jesus gets there, the bizarre-like atmosphere is underway. The tables of the money changers who were doing business with people bringing in foreign currencies, having to be changed into the currency of the temple and cheating them on the exchange rate, those that needed to bring sacrifices to offer The priesthood had to approve their sacrifice. It had to meet their specifications. And of course, it never did. But you could buy something that did meet their specifications over here on the side from their brother-in-law who was running the concession stand for sacrifices at an inflated price. Jesus walks into that environment and he is enraged. Verse 15. They came to Jerusalem, they entered the temple, and and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. 
And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. He began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. How he stopped people from from moving through the temple, we're not really sure. Certainly his righteous indignation was a force. Perhaps he stationed some of his disciples at the entrances. The people were used to to using the court of the Gentiles as as a shortcut through the city. They had turned that part of the, of the Temple Mount where, where the Gentile nations could come to, to worship the one true God. They, they had turned it into both a flea market and a cut-through. It reflects the heart of the nation, their attitude towards, towards both their missionary call and their approach to their God. They're irreverent. They're unfeeling. They're uncaring. And Jesus puts an end to it. The fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, where it says, Zeal for your house shall consume me. He cleanses the temple. Later that afternoon, John's gospel gives us another important event. John chapter 12. This is John's really only statements about the events of this time. Begins in verse 20. And he introduces something very interesting. This is Monday afternoon now. Verse 20, it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Jesus makes a really interesting response. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I can only imagine Andrew and Philip's head spinning. I mean, they they were just coming to ask if he he would talk to these few Greeks. And Jesus launches into this statement. Why does John record this for us? The reason he records this is because the arrival of the Greeks, that is the Gentiles, seeking an audience with Jesus, represents the reality that those who should have been seeking him were not. It is the nation who should have been coming to him, and the nation won't come. Instead, it's the Gentiles who come. And what Jesus says here is that the coming of the Greeks signals the end for that generation of Israel. 
His ministry will now turn and open to the Gentiles. They will come in. John confirms this for us in verses 36 and following with his commentary upon the hardness of the nation of Israel. Where he says in the middle of the verse, These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. It's over for the nation. The judicial hardening of God has fallen upon them. They have refused the light so repeatedly that the light is no longer being offered. It has been withdrawn. That's the point of the Greeks coming to see Jesus. That's the only events we have for Monday. After this, Jesus withdraws. He heads back up the hill, the Mount of Olives, back to Bethany, back to stay in the house of his friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, where he will spend the night. And they will shield him from the rulers. Tuesday morning comes, and the confrontation is intense. On his way early Tuesday morning back into the city, his disciples noticed the fig tree that has withered from the roots up, and they pointed out to him, Master, this is the tree that you cursed yesterday, and look at it. Now, I sprayed things with Roundup, and the next day they don't look too good. This was an entire fig tree withered from the ground up, from the roots up. Jesus uses this as an occasion to teach them a lesson on prayer and a believing heart. He heads into the city. He enters the courts of the temple, and the conflict begins. His activities of the previous days have, have ratcheted things up. He has been preventing the merchandising to be going on in the temple. The Sadducees are at wit's end with this man. He's been confronting the Pharisees regularly in the countryside. They're at wit's end with him. The common people, as I have said, really want no part of him, but they've kind of hung around because it makes for good sport. He's going to draw it all together now. What's going to happen on Tuesday is four intense confrontations. Four intense confrontations with the leaders of the nation of Israel. The purpose of these confrontations is they want to kill him. 
So they are, they are pursuing a twofold strategy. One is to try to discredit him with the crowd. So they're trying to peel him away from the crowds. As long as he remains popular, at least outwardly popular, they, they don't believe they have the leverage they need to publicly arrest him and kill him. The crowd is his shield. So they need to, they need to peel him away. They need to drive a wedge between him and the masses. It's one purpose of the confrontations. The other purpose of the confrontation is that if they can't drive in this wedge, then what they want to do is they want to catch him in some kind of a statement that will be seditious. And then they can have the Romans arrest him and kill him. So they are attacking. One wave after another. Four separate confrontations. Four separate attacks, all designed to either drive the wedge or to get him to make a political statement that they can have him arrested. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been involved in, in intense verbal combat, it's absolutely exhausting. Your mind and your heart have to be, have to be sharp when everything hangs on every single word. They're trying to trap you and trip you up in whatever you say. This is a long, hard day. The leaders have already decided to kill him. John chapter 12, verse 53 makes that very, very plain. From the raising of Lazarus, it says, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. These confrontations have nothing to do with determining is this man worthy of death or not. They've already figured that out. Bring the guilty party in, we'll give him a fair trial. They want to kill him. It is the populace, it is, his, it is popularity, it is the throngs, the multitudes, the worshipers that are protecting him at this point. Matthew 26, verse 5, makes that pretty plain. They're afraid. Matthew 26, verse 5. They want to seize him and kill him. It says, they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. If we seize him during the festival while he's still popular... A riot might ensue. If a riot ensues, the Romans will descend upon us and they will, they will take this whole enterprise away. So we can't do it that way. So they go after him, one after another, four separate times. It's really amazing to trace through these confrontations, and we will. At the end of the confrontations, according to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 12 and verse 34, we see the outcome. The end of the verse, Mark 12 and verse 34, says, After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. The outcome of these four confrontations is that when it's over, nobody will question him anymore. He has so thoroughly defeated and routed them that they withdraw. So let's take a look. Let's examine these confrontations. The first confrontation has to do with authority. 
It's a confrontation over authority. Matthew's gospel records it for us, Matthew chapter 21. It occurs between the chief priests, the scribes, and elders of the people. (coughs) Matthew chapter 21. Beginning in verse 23. When he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Who made you the boss? The basic idea. That you can come in here and disrupt what's going on in God's holy temple. Who gave you this kind of authority? Jesus' answer is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. He answers their challenge by referring back to John's baptism. And what he he is basically saying is that my authority and John's authority come from the same place. I mean, after all, he's my forerunner, right? Right? So you answer me a question. You tell me, where did John's authority come from? When you answer that question, you'll know where my authority came from. Jesus said that in verse 24, I will also ask you one thing. Which, of which if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. You want your answer? I'll give it to you. Just answer this question. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, Hmm, now, let's see, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, and they said, we don't know. We don't know. That's an incredibly cynical answer. It's an incredibly cynical answer. They say, we don't, we don't know. And Jesus says to them, well, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But I tell you what I will give to you. I will give you a series of three parables that will expose the real situation, what's really going on here. And so he begins to to tell three separate parables. The first is the parable of the two sons. It begins in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it, and he went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered and said, I will. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. You are like that son who said, Oh God, I I want to do your will. 
I am your, I, we are your chosen people. Just tell us what you want and we'll do it. But they won't. They're like that second son. It is the prostitutes. It is the tax collectors. It is the, the low part of society, the sinners, the unclean, the defiled. They're the ones who say first no, but then repent and say yes. They'll make it into the kingdom. He gives them a second parable, beginning in verse 33. The parable of the vine growers. Parable of the vine growers. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? It is the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are the vine growers. It is to them that the stewardship of the oracles of God have been given. And when God repeatedly sends his his spokesmen, his prophets to them, they kill one after another, and then God says, I'll send my son. Surely they'll listen to him. And they cynically reply, let's kill him and seize the kingdom for ourselves. There's a, there's a misnomer around that, that they didn't know that Jesus was Messiah. Nothing could be further than the truth. They knew exactly who he was, and they killed him anyway. In fact, they killed him specifically to take the kingdom for themselves. What will happen when the Father comes to collect his due. He will bring an end, verse 41, to those wretches, and he will rent out the vine, the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. It came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. They got it. He's speaking about them. He gives them one more, chapter 22. The parable of the king's wedding feast. Verses 1 to 14, I'm not going to read it. This is where the the king throws a wedding feast, right? Right? And when it's, when it's time for everybody to come, they ignore him. And the king is so enraged that he, he sends out his servants and, and he gathers others into the feast. 
Israel had been invited to the feast. She refused. God is enraged. And he will open the feast to others. He will compel others to come. He will invite the Gentiles to come in and enjoy the fruit of Israel's banquet. Second confrontation. He's bested the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians, that's a, that's a political party, come to him. They're going to confront him on the issue of taxes. All right, we failed on authority. We couldn't get him on that one. Let's get him on taxes. We can go to Luke chapter 20 for this. What they want him to do here is to, to verbalize a, a popular sentiment with the people. If they can get him to throw in with the multitudes, and they think they have him here, by the way. Nobody likes paying taxes. In particular, the Jews hated to pay taxes to Rome. On top of that, they particularly hated to pay what was called a poll tax to Rome. They got him. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Matthew 22, verse 17. That's the question. Is it lawful to pay your taxes to Caesar, and in particular, this very loathsome poll tax? We got him. If he says, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, what's going to happen with the crowds? No way. They hate this tax. If he says, no, don't pay this tax to Caesar, they'll have the Roman authorities there in less than 30 minutes to slap the cuffs on him. They got him. Or so they thought. Luke chapter 20, and beginning in verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies to pretend to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. Okay? So this is not about a, just a legitimate question. Hey, you know, Jesus, we've got this question. It's kind of bothering us. Maybe you could help us. Verse 21, they questioned him, saying, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly, and that you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. We call that flattery. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. They thought they had him. They thought they had him. He wheeled off the hook again. Third confrontation, this time with the Sadducees. Pharisees thought they had him with the, with the tax question. Now the Sadducees, they're going to get him with the resurrection confrontation. This is their best question. Okay? For the Pharisees, their best question was the taxes. The Sadducees have their best question, and it's the resurrection riddle. That's what I call it. The resurrection riddle. 
So we'll go back to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 22, for this one. Now, you see, you need to know what's going on here. They are trying to discredit him. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They think it's absurd. So they have developed this riddle that will point out the absurdity of the resurrection. And they've used it on on the Pharisees on regular occasions. And the Pharisees have never been able to evade the riddle. Why are they doing it to Jesus? Here's the answer. He's the one who claims that he is the resurrection and the life. If they can show that resurrection is absurd, they will have humiliated him. They'll have humiliated him. So they get out their big gun. 23, on that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. Asking him, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Here comes the riddle. Now there were seven brothers with us. The first married and died and having no children, left his wife to his brother, and so also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Gotcha. Gotcha. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. That is that marriage is a temporal, earthly arrangement. It doesn't carry over. But with regard to the resurrection, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? See, there's something else you need to know about the Sadducees. They only... They only agreed that the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired Scripture. And so Jesus draws from that which they agree to prove the resurrection of the dead. And he does it on a verb tense. He does it on a verb tense. He goes to Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What does that mean? What it means is it doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Exodus 3 has spoken to Moses. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have long since, what? Died. But he doesn't speak of them in a historical Since he speaks to them in a contemporary sense, I am their God. The crowds are astonished at his teaching. That takes to the fourth confrontation. A confrontation on the law. Confrontation with regard to the law. For this we're in Matthew 22 as well, verses 34 and following. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Which is the great commandment of the law? Israel had externalized the commandments. They had externalized the law. 
It was all about what you do. Jesus answered him and said, well, you know what it says. What does it say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When, when the scribe gives this answer, Jesus says, you know what? You're not far from the kingdom. That's the right answer. And by saying this, he asserts his authority over that kingdom. He asserts his authority. The end of the fourth confrontation. Tuesday has now drawn late into the afternoon. He's bested the leadership of the nation in open conflict. Now he completely silences all further discussion by asking a question of them. Matthew 22, verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? It's a simple question. Psalm 110, verse 1, universally recognized as a messianic psalm. How is it that David can refer to his son as his Lord? Just answer that question for me. The answer to the question, my friends, is the incarnation. It is the incarnation. They can't answer it. They won't answer it. And from that point on, it says, verse 46, no one's able to answer him a word, nor did they dare from that day on to ask him another question. He shuts them down. Chapter 23 of Matthew follows. Chronologically, it's here that he gives the most blistering public denunciation of Pharisaical Judaism. In all of what they had taught the people that it meant to be righteous. He calls them whitewashed tombs, outwardly beautiful, but, but inwardly full of dead men's bones and corruption. Listen, when he says this about them, he is poking his finger in the eyes of the common people. What he is saying is that the very best that your religion has to offer is nothing but a whitewashed tomb. Nothing but a whitewashed tomb. It's at this point he's exhausted. He, he sits down opposite the treasury and, and he observes the bankruptcy of Judaism. It's harsh enslavement that is portrayed in the, in the actions of a poor widow who is attempting to buy favor with God. And she gives every single thing that she has in the world, she puts it in the offering plate, and she goes home to die. It's given to us in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty, she put in everything she owned, all she had to live on. Listen, Jesus is not commending the generosity of this woman. Jesus is pointing out the corruption of the system. 
Verse 40, a system that devours widows' houses for appearance sake and offers long prayer. These will receive greater condemnation. He's saying what kind of a system would be so corrupt that it would take advantage of the most helpless of society, enslaving them into thinking that they can somehow buy their way into heaven? Days over. Sadducees and Pharisees have withdrawn. Their their hatred is now simmering. The crowds have melted away to consider the things that he has said to them. The only ones left are his bewildered disciples, and, and as they're heading out of the city, they hear him lament over the city. Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 and following. They ask him a couple of questions regarding the timing and the signs of when he will return. We arrive at Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, as what's known as the Olivet Discourse, where he teaches about his second coming. It's Tuesday evening, though. The leadership of, of the nation of Israel is gathered together. They're in the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and they are discussing how they might seize Jesus and kill him. The problem knew that they knew the problem was they couldn't arrest him publicly. The crowds appear still to be popular. He still appears to be popular with those crowds. They don't know what they're going to do. They think they have to wait until the feast is over. And then into their meeting walks Judas. Judas walks into the meeting and he offers to betray Jesus for a price. Mark 14, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. They couldn't believe their good fortune. They thought, there's no way we're going to touch this guy. We don't know how we're going to get our hands on him. And then in walks Judas and volunteers to hand him over. And what kind of, a, what kind of good luck they must have thought. I mean, there was no way we were going to penetrate the inner circle, right? We're not going to get a spy. We're not going to get a a betrayer inside his inner circle. And yet one of them comes comes to them. The prior Saturday night, Judas is, is stung by Jesus' public rebuke when, when Judas and the other disciples, they, they speak disparagingly of, of Mary when she anoints Jesus' body for burial, remember? Jesus rebukes him. Judas doesn't get over that. So Judas makes a bargain with the devil for 30 pieces of silver and says, I'll, I'll turn him in for you. From that time on, it says, verse 11, he he was looking for an opportune time to betray him. From Tuesday night forward, Judas is looking for a time to turn Jesus in, to betray Jesus. That time doesn't come until John records it for us in John 13 in the Last Supper. So from Tuesday night until Thursday night, Judas has got a problem. By the way, that's, that's why Jesus won't disclose publicly where he's going to celebrate the, the uh, Passover. Remember, he sends his two disciples. He says, you know, it's kind of weird. Go into the city. You'll see a guy with a water pot. Follow him. That's where, that's where we're going to celebrate the meal together. That's why he does that. He's wise as a serpent. He's as innocent as a dove. He won't tell the twelve where he's going. If he tells the twelve, Judas will tell the authorities they'll be waiting for him to arrest him. 
So where they're going to celebrate is a, is a surprise. No one knows until they get there, except for Peter and John. Of course, you remember, Judas is dismissed from the meal. Where does he go? Right away to the authorities to get the soldiers to arrest him. When I began this morning, I, I asked you this question. Given Sunday, with the drawing throngs, right? Why Friday? When they shall crucify him. The answer is the events of Monday and Tuesday. The nation went home Tuesday night. The people went home. They had time to think. From Tuesday night until Friday morning, they had time to think about the king. Draw your conclusion. This is what he requires of us. Yes, he can clearly give us our long-awaited kingdom. But the cost of admission is too high for us to pay. He asks more than we're willing to give. At the beginning of the whole thing, John said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is at hand in the person of the king, a king who demands humility and faith to enter into his kingdom. And they're not interested. They're not interested. Deep down inside, they liked it the way it was. They liked their system of self-effort. They liked their system of external righteousness. And here's the scary part. Some of you here this morning do too. Some of you like it that way. A terrifying judgment came on that generation. Terrible judgment because of their hardness of heart. Listen, the same judgment awaits you. If you are relying upon your own righteousness, if a a religion of externalism satisfies you, going through the motions. Listen, we're talking about Pharisees. When it comes to going through the religious motions, nobody was better than they. A religion of moralism, good behavior, doing what's right, coming to all the right religious festivals and ceremonies, saying the right words, offering the right prayers, singing the right songs, reading the Bible. They had it all. And yet it was external. They weren't willing to pay the price. Judgment came on them. Judgment will come on you. Unless you change course. Unless you change course. Listen to me. What makes Good Friday good? What is it that makes Good Friday good? It's good because on that day, Jesus the Messiah willingly died on a cross on on behalf of his people to take their sin and their guilt upon him. To be punished 
to the full extent of the Father's wrath and fury in the place of His people. That's what makes it good. Because that sacrifice offered then is still available today by faith. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You you believe that He died in your place, that that He hung on that cross in your place for your sin. Not in a general sense, for your sin. Then His sacrifice, the Father will find sufficient on your account. Listen, Jesus offers this deliverance freely to any who will come. He said in Matthew 11, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. The question you have to consider this morning is, will you come? Will you come? Will you? Will you? Let's pray. Our Father, you sent your Son to be the Savior of the world. that he might hang on that cross in the place of his people. Our Father, we know that that gift of redemption is still available today. I pray, O oh Lord, for those in the, within the hearing of my voice that they would consider this. The Easter weekend draws near the resurrection how Jesus burst the bonds of death conquered sin in the grave and offers everlasting life to those who will receive him by faith I pray O Lord for those here this morning who have yet to place saving faith in Jesus Christ and Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. O Lord, open their eyes, remove the scales. May it not be true of them what John wrote of the nation, that they have eyes but cannot see and ears and they cannot hear. O Lord, may you grant them that faith they need. And Father, I pray for the rest of us as as we consider what Jesus has done on our behalf. May our love for our Savior only increase. We pray in His name. Amen.